Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, это Prevail и ваш ведущий Грег Оли. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. Episode 16 is a show about faith. And by faith, I mean, what do we believe in? Because everybody believes in something. We have to, I think. Psychologically, it's a necessity. Even atheists who don't believe in God put their faith in something. Maybe it's the stock market or the almighty dollar or the Yankees winning the pennant or who knows. But they believe something because psychologically it's too hard to not believe anything. We would just run around doubting everything all the time and it would be both exhausting and kind of a depressing way to live life. And I'm no exception. I believe things that are fundamentally, objectively silly. Every morning I have a tarot card deck on my desk and I take a tarot card out of the deck and that's the card of the day. And I try to apply what the meaning of the card is to what's going on in my life at that time. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but I like to do it. It's something that I believe in for whatever reason, even though I know, objectively speaking, it's completely silly and ridiculous, but I don't care. It's just what I do. You know, I mean, other people go to church and they pray to a God that they can't see And they believe in a guy that died 2,000 years ago and supposedly came back from the dead and yet only his apostles saw him and then he left again, turned water into wine, walked on water, even though nobody's done anything like that ever before or since. But people believe it and it's totally fine. We all say, great, you believe what you want to believe. Freedom of belief, freedom of religion, in other words, is protected in the United States And our Bill of Rights, First Amendment, can believe whatever we want. That's right. Now, some beliefs, obviously, are crazier than others, right? You can believe you can fly. Doesn't make it so when you try to test your belief by jumping off a building. You can believe you're impervious to disease, but that doesn't help you when you go out and get COVID. You can believe that vaccines don't work and they're deep state trying to microchip you or whatever the fuck these idiots think that won't help you when you actually get the coronavirus and need to be hooked up to a ventilator the republicans not all republicans the MAGA republicans the QAnon republicans the Marjorie Taylor Greene republicans believe crazy shit right and we on our side of the fence the democratic pro-democracy side of the fence look at these people in bewilderment because how can they believe something that's just so crazy but they believe it the people that went to the insurrection that participated in the besieging of the capital on january 6th i think believe they were acting in good faith they believe the president of the united states sent them there to do their patriotic duty not going to help them it's not going to help them any more than the belief that you can fly will help you if you jump off a building 
but they believe it and we know that that belief is wrong it's fundamentally wrong but you know the republicans are not the only ones who believe crazy things here's a tweet from gary kasparov chess master and russian dissident politician he tweeted this last week he said the republicans aren't the ones denying reality they admit they cannot win elections fairly they admit the january 6th insurrection reflects their members and their base they are acting accordingly to seize and hold power denying that is the delusion that's what gary kasparov said so my question is why do we believe what we believe why do we fall prey to scams why do we let cult leaders enthrall us with their words why do we give money to people we shouldn't give money to why have we bought bitcoin or dogecoin or i don't know whatever coin i don't know you know there are reasons so i asked my friend asia raiden who has a new book out called the truth about the lies and in her book she talks about lies the psychology that underlies things that we believe she talks about scams why people fall prey to scams and it's a really good book you should pick it up the truth about the lies but we have a pretty pretty good discussion basically about lies and truth and why we believe what we believe so we'll be right back with Asia Raiden they vanished without a trace leaving behind no clue of their whereabouts follow along with detectives friends and family as we uncover the timeline of their mysterious and unexplained disappearance missing persons on the true crime podcast network this week's episode attorney general merrick garland he came into the department of justice with a fanfare he was a champion of truth he wept at his confirmation hearing he hasn't been heard from since don't miss missing persons doj now streaming We are live. I am here with my friend, Asia Raiden, author of the new book, The Truth About Lies. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? I am. I am well. Thank you very much. You and I know each other because we did an event in New York City some time ago, which feels like a million years ago, at a bar called KGB because... um, it's appropriate to go to a bar called KGB when you're talking about Trump and Russia. So everything just felt very appropriate. Dirty rubles. Yeah, exactly. I gave that, but KGB actually is a fixture in the New York city literary scene and has been for quite some time. I think it was really a hangout of, of ex KGB guys, but I don't know. They just try to make it look cool. They put up pictures of Lenin and they're very capitalist with how much the drinks cost though. So, so was the Soviet union. (laughs) That is true. That's true. So, and you, your previous book is called Stoned, Jewelry, Obsession, and How Desire Shapes the World. I want to talk a little bit about that book too, because that book's really terrific. But so the first question I have for you, author of The Truth About Lies, is who are you and why should we believe you? Uh, I'm nobody and you shouldn't. (laughs) Um, (laughs) As far as who I am, I'm me. I'm Asia. Raiden and I I was a jewelry designer I went to a birthday party drank too much it was full of literary agents and writers and um somebody was wearing a ring I designed and when she said to the only person there who was not in publishing I heard you're a jewelry designer what kind of jewelry do you design I said well that kind and she said you design engagement rings and I said no cupcake I designed your engagement ring And she thought that was very exciting and wanted to tell her husband about it. And I was like, yep, did his too. That was a very popular model that year. And um, he immediately asked the question men ask when they find out you're in the jewelry industry, which is, you know, how much is it worth? Is it a good one? Did I get a, did I get a good diamond? And I hate that question for lots of reasons, but mostly he, we were in a dark bar. It was three in the morning in Paris. We were at a birthday party that was on like day number two or three. And I was like, yeah, it's great. And he was like, what? What's wrong with it? Oh my God. And I was like, nothing, nothing. Backpedal, nothing's wrong with it. It's great. It's fantastic. And he was like, no, tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. And I was like, 
it's fine. It's, it's fabulous. Like, what do you want to do? Take out a loop and look at it? Like, and he wouldn't stop hammering me about, tell me the truth. And finally I said, do you want to know the truth? The truth is they're all exactly the same and none of them are worth anything. At which point you could, you know, hear people chewing. Cause I said it loudly. I had a lot of champagne and um, his wife, Jess said, that's interesting because we paid for it. <laughs> and, um, I thought, this is why I don't get invited to more parties. And I tried to explain what I meant because they were interested. And I ended up talking to them about diamond cartels and how diamond engagement rings weren't really de rigueur until just after World War II. Engagement rings in general were kind of an iffy, yeah, if you want one, maybe. Or maybe I'll get you a different piece of jewelry or maybe I'll buy you a house. But the idea of an engagement ring as something you absolutely do to be engaged was invented by an advertising company on behalf of a would-be diamond cartel. So everything we think of in terms of modern advertising from product placement to consumer surveying and early indoctrination, all the stuff cigarettes do. They borrowed from the diamond model. And it was because after World War II, all the money had shifted to the U.S. into this new burgeoning middle class. And they needed someone to sell diamonds to. And there wasn't really any money left in Europe to sell it there or Russia because they had become the Soviet Union. They sold a lot of diamonds there. So they were trying to sell it to Americans and Americans didn't want it. And in the end, it worked. They managed to convince Americans that diamond engagement rings are real. They've always existed everybody's always had them and you're not really married if you don't have one. And it's this massive industry, but more to the point, it's this massive lie that this is a timeless tradition because really it's exactly the same age as the microwave oven. (laughs) That's how old it is. I was trying to explain this in a bar at one point and the man who had bought the ring said to my friend, the birthday girl, can she write? And we'd been college roommates and I I had studied physics and she said, I don't even know if she can read. And and they together sort of browbeat me, dared me, whatever, into writing a book, which I did. And I expected to be run out of the jewelry industry on a rail because it's a little bit of a burn book. And it's not just about diamonds. It's about a lot of things. But it ended up quite popular, particularly in that industry. Then one night we were standing in front of a restaurant shortly thereafter And my friend said, you know what I want? I want to read a book about like famous crimes or famous swindles or something. And I said, I'll write it. And she was like, what? And I was like, I'll write it. And I meant I'll write it someday because I was supposed to be writing the second of three books that came after Stone was going to be a trilogy. And I was supposed to be writing the second one, Hammered. And um, instead, events took a turn in everyone's life over the last two and a half years, maybe. Yeah. And I found myself increasingly distracted, less interested in the subject I was writing about and more interested in the broader ancient philosophical question of like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> like, what the fuck? I think that, you know, what's good about Stoned, and I think already people listening to this have the flavor, is that it's peppered with these little stories because you know a lot of stuff about a lot of different things and you manage to kind of put it in, in the book and spin a, 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 the way that people view the world. I, I was told pretty firmly that diamonds are forever. So I don't know, you know, it came That's as a shock. That's my favorite lie about diamonds. Of yeah. all the gemstones in the world, when you take them out of the ground and you bring them up here and you, you put them in a ring, standard temperature and pressure, they start to revert back into graphite immediately really so of all the lies about diamonds that one is my favorite oh my god james bond ian fleming what are you doing you're lying to me i can't even being paid by being paid by Mm. nwa's and de beers product placement yeah Yeah. that's why particularly in that era of the late 40s through the late 60s you can't watch a movie that doesn't have a diamond in it there are scenes in jewelry stores. There are scenes with proposals. There are scenes of people, beautiful women getting dressed and putting on diamonds. You know, from breakfast at Tiffany's to gentlemen prefer blondes. That was paid for to make people think the beautiful people, they have diamonds. The rich people, they have diamonds. The married people, they have diamonds. Mm. 
Holly Golightly did not have a diamond. Holly Golightly had a one, ring. Though. She had a ring that came out of a Cracker Jack box that they paid $5 to have engraved. But I know she wanted like, one. She did. Of course she did. Well, that's why I used diamonds as the best example I could come up with in the last chapter of The Truth About Lies as an example of a long con, which ultimately doesn't just manipulate your experience of reality externally. In doing so, it sometimes alters reality. And in this case, that's what happened. Yeah, they got valuable because people wanted them. And it's really and kind of a genius. People wanted them because they were told they were valuable and people wanted them. Yeah. It's like a Matryoshka doll of bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A Mobius strip of, of something. I what, What's really, really devious about the diamond thing is that you're screwed because you can't rebel against it. If you're a dude and you want to propose to a, a lady, you need to have the nice ring now. You ha- You can't fight against it because the only person that's going to look bad is you. It's going to make you look like a cheap jerk. And it's going to make your would-be fiance mad at you. It's like Mother's Day. Mother's Day is the ultimate, the ultimate genius advertising thing. Because how can you how can you rebel against Mother's Day? What you're you're not going to send your mother flowers? What kind of a jerk are you? You know, it's just I, the Hallmark people, just genius. Whoever whoever thought of that idea, just promote them, please. Yeah. <laughs> no, but but you're right. It was done that way on purpose. They actually sent people in, under the guise of education into schools to indoctrinate little boys and girls early on and tell them all about diamonds and, of course, diamond engagement rings. And they basically planted this idea in the minds of children and teenagers that they were not married if they didn't have a diamond. And then they arbitrarily came up with how many months salary. And when it worked, they added another month on. And it's just, a th- yeah, I, I don't know. But is it's it, con. It's, 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 it's post World War II, because I'm thinking now about um, Marathon Man. Right. Marathon Man is Laurence Olivier plays the ex-Nazi who has the diamonds that he's smuggled out of the. For a second, I was thinking of the wrong movie and I thought, where the hell is he going with this? I was thinking Omega Man. (laughs) No, no, not Omega. I don't think I ever saw Omega Man. No, uh, Marathon Man is, is it safe? Is it safe? Is it safe? And he's talking about his diamonds, which he's, you know, obviously stolen and, and, and gotten out of the country. So. Yeah, the diamonds have 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 expanded in value. So what's the uh, I have this on my list of questions, even though it has nothing whatsoever to do with the new book, which I promise you we will be talking about soon. Um, what's what's the deal with blood diamonds? What does that even mean? Uh, it's also a really good advertising campaign. The idea with a blood diamond is that you've bought a diamond that was mined or forcibly mined in a conflict region. There are all kinds of minerals including tin that are considered conflict minerals, depending on where they come from. And a conflict mineral is a mineral of some value that you're buying and you might be buying it on the up and up, but the person selling it was not. They either stole it or they murdered people to get it, or they're gonna murder a lot of people with the money they got from selling it. That's why they're in conflict regions. Usually they're used to fund terrorism or wars. Blood diamond though, is just a, a really fantastic advertising campaign because you never hear about blood tin. You never hear about blood coltan. You never hear about blood wolframite. And it's just as bad. Yeah. And it's in the laptops we're talking to each other on. And it's that was going to be the third book in that series, Rocked, was going to be about minerals. I just never got around to it because what the fuck, man? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The world took a sharp turn into what the fuck. But as far as being um, an advertising campaign, you know, it's interesting that, first of all, it, it speaks to the power of a long con. Because we all know about blood diamonds and we don't care. I mean, we care. We say we care. We might pay lip service to it through something like the Kimberly process. But the truth is, everybody still just wants a diamond. Yeah. And deep down really deep down, you want a diamond more than you want a pearl because you know pearls are grown in big farms in Japan and it's not that exciting. There's no danger. There's no, somebody might've gotten killed mining this. Humans kind of like that. We say we, it's one of the many things we say we don't like, but we do. 
which is a big part of what Stoned was about. It's about, mm-hmm. it was about desire. It was about why people want what they want and why they value what they value and why they denigrate what they denigrate and how kind of twisted up and, and unclear it is. And then of course, how the desire for certain individual specific objects has altered the course of history. Well, like diamonds are, like you say, they now they've they've had this air of sexiness and danger and this and that. And pearls are just something we clutch when we are upset about some dumb thing. So it, mm-hmm. even, you know, if you think about pearls and wh- where that word is even used in expressions, pearl clutching is the first one, at mm-hmm. least that pops into my mind. That and pearls before swine, mm-hmm. which is, you know, so what? That, that's old, old, old. Um, yeah, and, and what you don't know is that I've had a lot of friends come to me and say, I can't, I just can't, I don't want a diamond. Can you get me a ruby? And then I have to go, do you know where those rubies come from? Do you know what they did to the children mining them? It's so much worse than what's going on in any part of Africa or Australia or, and also people assume diamonds all come from Africa. That hasn't been true in a long time. The biggest mine in the world is in Russia. Uh One of the most productive is in Australia. They're everywhere because they're actually very common stones. Blood diamond as a marketing technique was, it was a complicated combination of deliberate undermining of a brand, which the brand being diamonds in general, uh, by competitors and people of genuinely good intent who didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Mm -hmm. And then everybody jumping on a social bandwagon. And that's why we've all heard of a blood diamond. Yeah, And And there was a very famous movie made about it Mm. by a man who owns a company called the foundry and the foundry makes synthetic diamonds. And he's not eager to advertise that fact, but in the financial times last week, there was an article that said the foundry has just hit a major milestone in terms of mass manufacturing, synthetic diamonds, lab grown diamonds. So if Leonardo DiCaprio weren't already a rich man, he would be now. So wait, so there's synthetic diamonds. What's the difference between synthetic diamonds and like a cubic zirconia, which is what we were trained? They have nothing in common with each other. Okay. That's like asking what's the difference between an apple and a cupcake? Okay, well. They're just not even related to each other, except you might put them in your mouth. Okay. So it's not anywhere near the same thing, but do no, cubic zirconia- a lab-grown diamond, the best way to explain it is we don't forage for food, right? I mean, I don't know what you, I don't know your life, right? But- um, <laughs> Does going to the supermarket count? I forage aisle seven looking for- you Yeah, know, exactly. Pasta sauce. We, don't, yeah. we don't forage, we farm. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, Mikimoto figured out about a hundred years ago how to farm pearls instead of diving for oysters, pulling up zillions of oysters and finding a pearl every once in a while. They figured out, how to plant the pearls in the oysters, keep them in big racks, in big beds, and grow billions of them. So synthetic diamonds are farmed diamonds, as strange as that sounds. When they're done, they're diamonds. But they were grown very quickly, relatively speaking, in a lab rather than in the depths of the earth over millions of years. Interesting. This is also fascinating. See, this book, that's why... If you're listening to this, this stoned book is great. We haven't even talked about Fabergé or Lenin well, or all the other. There's so much yeah, cool shit in this I don't think I even got into synthetic diamonds and stoned. That's more in this new book. There's lots of cool stuff in both books. Anyway, all right, let's talk about the new book. So okay. I have, first of all, what exactly gave you the idea to write it? Was it just what you described before? Like somebody suggested it and you were like, okay. Well, a friend said, I want to read a book about famous crimes or famous swindles or something. And I said, sure, I'll do it. But then I backburnered it. And and part of it was the sharp turn the world took into what the fuck-ism. And you see people around you and you think, why are you doing that? Why are you saying that? You don't really believe that, do you? And part of it was, it actually, it's not the follow-up I had planned for Stone, which I may still write, but it is, in a sense, a sort of natural follow-up because the first one was about why people want what they want. And this one is just about why people believe what they believe. Yeah. 
And yeah. and every story in Stone, the more I thought about it, had a at its heart had a big fucking lie. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, I'm gonna read a line from the new book here. Okay. And then you, and then you can talk about it because it's okay. In a sense, the inseparable abilities to lie and believe have played a more important role than opposable thumbs in humans becoming the dominant species on earth. True fact. Yeah, so talk about that a little bit. The way in which we perceive the world is circumscribed by 12 cognitive biases, among other things. And one of them is honesty bias. What honesty bias means is you have a tendency if your brain is working correctly, at least, you believe whatever you're presented with as true. Okay. You don't need evidence. You don't need to reason it through. You just believe it's true because you've been presented with it. Whether that's the floor under your feet, you don't question whether or not it's there. Whether that's, you know, a wall across the room, you don't question whether it's there. When we met and I said, my name's Asia, you didn't think, is that really your name? I, did, I mean, actually. maybe you did because it's a yeah. stupid name. But for the, when you said your name was Greg, I didn't go, I wonder if that's really his name. Unless you're confronted with evidence to the contrary, or you have some reason to believe you might be being deceived or you might be getting bad information, your brain just accepts anything it's presented with as true. And that's called honesty bias. And it's one of the things that allows people to believe anything at all, but it also allows them constantly believe things that aren't true and as an evolutionary adaptive trait it works for us because the vast majority of things you're presented with are true yeah but then you've still got this big open back door where people can lie to you and you can't actually separate them because it's the same honesty bias and many of the ways in which we believe lies not just honesty bias but other things as well exist for the same sort of reason they're there because they're an adaptive advantage and you can't throw them away without losing the adaptive advantage. In this case, honesty bias means you went to kindergarten and somebody taught you the alphabet. You didn't sit there wondering, is she really my teacher? Is any of this really real? Why is K? You just went, okay. And you learned the alphabet and then you learned to read and then you wrote a book. So not having to question and work out for ourselves every piece of information we come across is what allows us to even function. But among humans, it's particularly intensely pronounced in such a way that we're able to form a larger collective organism, a sort of super organism, the way beehives do or, or other group animals do. But the way we do it is through collective intelligence. I see a lot of books on the shelf behind you. You can know everything anyone who wrote one of those books knew. You just have to read it. Yeah. And if you didn't have books before there were books, before there was writing, you just had to ask somebody, how do you make fire? And they'd go, oh, you get this stick and you go like rub it together like this. And you did not have to quest for fire all by yourself, caveman. You can just keep adding and adding and adding and adding and adding onto the collective knowledge of the group. Standing and on the shoulder of giants. That's what makes humans humans, but it's also what makes humans fucking stupid when it comes to being lied to, because we have this heavily selected for adaptation to just believe stuff. Now, you, you said when I was in kindergarten or nursery school or whatever, I wouldn't question what is K, but today I do question what is Q? That would be the letter that should be questioned. Yeah. <laughs> Getting into the honesty bias, but in all seriousness, it sounds like what's happening. And we were talking about this before we hit record, but one of the great things about this book is that you barely mentioned Trump. And I think you mentioned Bannon once, as you said, but it's impossible to read it and not think about what's been going on and the, and the disinformation and the bombardment by Trump and by QAnon and all of, the, all of this sort of forces. And it sounds like this honesty bias thing really is, it, it, it's more than a back door. It's like, this is the storefront and there's a speakeasy in the back and that's where the line is. And, um, you know, it's dangerous now because there's a fucking nightclub in the back that we don't want any part of because we're pearl clutchers here in the front. You know? <laughs> well, you know, there are a lot of different lies. There are different kinds of lies. And 
I think that was what I was going for was I mentioned Trump once parenthetically because he was the subject of a study done on the entire history of Twitter. So I couldn't, you know, just not say it. And I think I mentioned Bannon in one sentence um, because I was talking about Rasputin and cults. And it just seemed obvious, <laughs> even if he didn't have a Rasputin tattoo on his back. But um, which Wait, he does might. he have a Rasputin tattoo on his back? I don't know. I, oh, I know okay. Roger Stone has a the Nixon, Nixon yeah, tattoo yeah, yeah, on his yeah, back. Yeah. So I wouldn't put it past Steve Bannon to have a Rasputin tattoo. No, me neither. I, yeah. um, <laughs> now I'm picturing it and I'm nauseous. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted, I mean, you said you, you couldn't help thinking about it. Well, that's what I was thinking about while I was writing it. And I didn't write about it at all. What I wrote about was all sorts of ap delightfully appalling stories of yeah, swindles. And I want to talk about some of the stories too. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the, what I was trying to do was figure out why people believe what they believe. And you know how there are supposedly only so many stories. There's like Boy Meets Girl and Hero's Quest. And I don't remember what the rest are because I'm not, I'm not that kind of writer. I do nonfiction. Um, but you know, the... Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. Man versus nature, man versus yeah. himself, man versus animal. Of, yeah. Whatever. A number of stories and any story you make up is going to be derivative of one of them. Sure. Well, it was my assumption that lies work the same way. There are only so many lies and any lies you tell are derivative of whatever these sort of foundational primal lies are. And I was trying to figure out what they are. And once I did, I was like, yeah, these are perfectly epitomized by cons. I can just multitask here and write that book for my friend. <laughs> and, um, and so I decided there are three kinds of lies. There are lies we tell each other, lies we tell ourselves, and then lies we all agree to believe as a group. And that's where it gets really complicated and weird. Mm. But for each chapter, I picked a con and I explained how it worked like a shell game or a pyramid scheme or snake oil or the guru. The guru con is how people end up in cults like Q. Once I explained how it worked, I sort of put it in its historical context and its neurological context and tried to explain why people believe this stuff. Yeah. It's, because we all do. Well, we have to. And I think part of it, part of the human condition is that we can't not believe in something. I think everybody has to believe in something, even if it's completely dumb. I think it's like a, a condition of being human that we want to place faith in something. I think probably because it's, it goes back to the honesty bias. It's too, it's too exhausting to be questioning everything all the time. We just can't, whatever the bandwidth, man, you know, it's, I, it's like the way humans like to believe they don't want a blood diamond. Humans like to believe they're individuals, but you're actually just a cell in a massive multicellular organism. There's lots of things that we thought humans believe that they don't. I forget who tweeted it. Somebody, somebody said, we're going to have to change the expression, avoid it like the plague, because as it turns out, humans don't avoid plagues. So yeah. nope, they run right at the mouth open from what um, I've seen. That's exactly what, and, and, and we'll die for the right to do so and are proud of it because that's, that's what we're dealing with. I want to talk more about the book and I want to talk about the stories. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Asia Raiden, author of The Truth About Lies. I'm former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first-of-a-kind podcast, we'll sit down with active-duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Homicides, sexual assaults, missing persons, and unidentified human remains. Somehow a computer could solve crimes. 93 homicides. I, I'm one of those guys that I've wanted to be an FBI in since I was six years old. M.O. His modus operandi. Busting down doors with guns drawn. But I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't much more aware of the guy sitting in a vehicle on the roadside when I'm walking my dog at night. Unsolved cases sitting in evidence rooms on shelves. They didn't want to have sex with them. They just wanted to kill someone. 
All right, we're back with Asia Raiden, author of The Truth About Lies. Now, I want to talk about some of the stories, some of the cons, because you read them and you're like, oh, my God. The first one, which I think is very Trumpy, is the guy selling the place, the real estate in the new world that basically wasn't even a thing. It wasn't just real estate. So that chapter, the con that that chapter is based on is the big lie. How funny is that? Because I wrote that two years ago. Um, But I tried to explain how the big lie works and why people fall for it. And the example I used was this story of this man, Gregor McGregor. Well, he was sort of a mercenary soldier of fortune type. And he spent quite a few years in the new world, fucking around, killing people, probably doing bad things. I don't really know. And then he came back. Yeah, he, yeah, he definitely was killing. He, he was, was a liar. So yeah. <laughs> he was a big liar. He came back, the prince of Poyais, because he said he had gotten the local potentate, the ruler of Poyais, blind drunk and swindled him out of his country. And he even had a document to this effect. He brought some people back with him, some some charmingly exotic natives, botanical samples. He had a book someone had written about Poyais named Captain Strangeways, which is a hilarious nom de plume. And basically this was, you know, just, just a few years after the Revolutionary War, everybody in England was like more American colonies. Yes, please. Yeah. And he managed to sell, literally and figuratively, Poyais to all of, of England and Scotland. People gave him all of their money. Well, he was made Sir Gregor McGregor by the king to make sure it stayed a loyal colony. And he got a huge amount of money from a bank. And he floated the bond on the market. He sold titles of nobility, he sold estates, he sold plantations, he sold houses, he sold jobs, he sold everything. And then he even exchanged people's money. If you were one of the poorer colonists, it'd be like, well, just give me all of your pounds. You don't need those in the new world. And I'll give you this money from Poyais, right? So you're reading this and you're expecting he didn't, he's not really the prince of Poyais. They're going to get there and angry locals are going to kill them, right? Yep. So the first of two ships, hundreds of people on each one of them, sail off to Poyais. When they get there, there is no Poyais. He made up the whole country. There never was a Poyais. Almost everyone died. There was like a handful of survivors who got picked up by a British ship and brought back later that year. And the most, I think, messed up part of this story is that when they got back, they defended him. They said it wasn't his fault. Obviously, the ship went to the wrong place, or the colony was destroyed, or rivals had sabotaged it, or something. They just Mm. refused to believe that none of it was ever real. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, the only happy part of that story is they got back there before they sent too many more colonists to die. But he had raised the bond price to something like the equivalent of $4.6 billion on a place that didn't exist. That's crazy. I mean, even in Glengarry Glen Ross, when they're selling those crappy Florida real estate, at least there are places, you know, there are lots in Florida that you can go to. Florida exists. That's a different kind of lie. That's a bait and switch. And that's Mm. chapter three. Chapter one is the big lie. (laughs) And the big lie is when you just tell an absolutely outrageous lie that no reasonable person would believe with no evidence to support it at all. Like, I'm the prince of this country you've never heard of. Or I really won that election. You all saw me lose four times in Georgia. <laughs> that's what that's what makes that's what makes the big lie its own kind of lie is that it doesn't work in opposition to your understanding of objective reality or your belief in facts. It works in tandem with them because when somebody says something really crazy to you and they don't seem to be crazy and other people believe them, well. No one would lie about something like that if they didn't have real evidence to back it up. That's why in the book, I I point out that it's a true fact that people are more likely to believe you if you lie about owning an island than owning a boat. If you said you owned a boat, I might question whether or not that was true. If you said, if you just casually mentioned you owned an island, well, who lies about that? Yeah, I do, by the way, own an island. My family does. Yeah. But no one wants to go there, actually, because it's in the frozen North Sea. 
<laughs> no, really. <laughs> you know, global warming, you're going to make a lot of money in 200 years. Keep it. Keep if that it's not deed. underwater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> keep the deed. Um, okay. Here's another, here's another passage from your book that I'm going to read that, that touches on what we just said. So what happens when you have to process two conflicting beliefs? One gets dumped in the idea shredder. And it actually doesn't make a bit of difference which one is more factually accurate. You defend and protect whichever idea you need to be true in order not to have to been wrong at some point, like the guys coming back from the fantastical island of Paez, right? Okay. The psychological and neurological stress experienced during moments of cognitive dissonance are so great, you'll believe anything to protect your pre-existing mental paradigm. It's why people refuse to hear proof of things like climate change, or see clips of transgressions that they insist didn't happen in the event that they've already decided that they don't believe it. Yeah, I mean- I like that passage. It, <laughs> it, I mean, that's, that's pretty much, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, <laughs> no, uh, that's how cognitive dissonance works. You have belief, it's actually easier to convince someone of a lie, any lie about anything, than it is to convince them that they have been lied to if they believed it after the fact. People, for a lot of complicated reasons, cognitive dissonance being a big one, are not often capable of going back and going, yes, I've been had. I believed crazy, stupid things. Unless they have some wiggle room where it doesn't kick the struts out of their other load-bearing beliefs. For mm. example, their own belief in their ability to tell real from make-believe, which is rather important. I think this has to do, this touches on gaslighting also, because I know that when I am being gaslit, which the previous administration did very successfully for four years in every manner that it was possible to be gaslit, and people like Tucker Carlson continue to gaslight everybody. Oh, um, is he on, losing his mind? Or on is the he, daily. Is he I, doing this to make other people crazy? I'm watching it and I'm riveted. I can't tell which it is in the last week. He's sort of a fascinating character study, I guess, because when I see these people, the traitors, what I'm really trying to figure out is, okay, why are they doing this? Why is this person doing this? I know a lot of the time it's because they're owned. You know, Mike Pence, he's owned. He, he has no free will. He has to do whatever they say. Lindsey Graham is owned. Anybody that goes to visit Trump at Mar-a-Lago and kisses the ring it's, is owned. It's a big part of how doing bad things works. Yes. Yeah. You know, you can't get out of a life of crime once you're in it. Yep. You've done bad things and yeah. you can't just go, nope, I'm turning over a new leaf. Or somebody will go, hey, what if I tell the police about that heroin shipment? Right. I should probably do this other thing I want you to do. Now you say that there was a key time where Matt Gates went on Tucker's show and said, right after all the news came out about him. And he said, well, there's this girl that I was with. You'll remember her, Tucker. We went out to dinner. I saw that. You and your wife, we went to dinner and I didn't process it at the time. I just saw the clip and I thought, I think that's a threat. I think Gates is telling Tucker, you and I were out with two girls and you were not married to either one of them. And I know it and you know it. So be careful. And Tucker immediately shut that down. But then like a week or two later was back on TV defending Matt Gates. So it may be that he's being a little bit prodded, but I don't know with him. It's very strange. I don't know if he if he thinks he's going to take over the world. I don't know if he's just actively evil. He may just be actively evil. He seems evil. to be actively evil yeah. and definitely a hardcore white supremacist. Yeah, yeah. But that notwithstanding, just, I mean, lately, <laughs> he seems to have gone insane. Yeah. Like, before it was very Third Reichy. You know, it was tightly controlled. I'm going to sit here and lie to you in a bow tie and see how many of you believe it. And later when we take your brains out, we'll look at slides and see what it did to them. Like that was the vibe I got from him. Yeah. Okay. Mengele. Yeah. Yeah. Now he seems like somebody forgot to turn the camera off. Like he snapped. Now, he why would you snap? You'd snap because there's, you're under a lot of pressure. Yeah. For, for, and, and, you know, I know he's he's under pressure to keep his job because the advertisers have mostly pulled out and he's there because 
the Murdochs want him there. He's not there because he's making money for the network at this point. He's there to spread disinformation. So maybe he's nervous about that. Maybe he's nervous that stuff that he's done uh, that Gates alluded to or sort of hinted at or alleged, I guess would be the word, is going to come out. you're hanging out with Matt Gates, you've done more than go on a date you shouldn't have. (laughs) He doesn't seem like he'd be a lot of fun, I have to say. Those guys do not seem fun to me. I wouldn't bring either one of them their dinner if I was their waitress. I can't imagine who would go on a date with them. There's lots of, th- I can't imagine who's watching this Tucker Carlson guy at this point. Like, Well, me, because I'm fascinated. It's like, what? what is the audience for this? It's like batshit. I mean, the COVID well, thing is real. Like, wow. Well, I, I don't, um, you know. You know, I, I actually covered that in one chapter. What is the audience for this? It's yeah. very much like televangelists. Mm-hmm. I think that was, what, that was maybe my favorite chapter, the chapter yeah. on on uh, the Guru Khan. The Guru Khan is a good con. If <laughs> I was if I was if I was a darker person, I think I would enjoy pulling that con. That would be that would be a fun one. But it's also the nastiest one. Well, that's why I can't do it. Because you're preying on weak or damaged people. Yeah. I could pull a bait and switch on you, and you're a perfectly reasonable, normal person, and you'd just be mad when you found out. Right. You know, your life wouldn't be ruined, probably. I could absolutely trick you into a shell game because that's the kind of lie that works based on neurological loopholes. Right. And and limitations in processing speed in our visual cortex. So everyone yeah, that, that was that was interesting. Games. I like the shell game part. That was that was really fascinating. Yeah, everybody falls for shell games. You can't not fall for a shell game. The only part where you should feel dumb is where you agreed to play. So don't do that. But yeah. But the Guru Khan is just particularly mean-spirited because it particularly works on people in need. It works on poor people, it works on sick people, it works on scared people. It works on abused it people and traumatized works people. works very well on abused people. Yeah. It's the foundation of every cult ever. Some more dubious political movements, a lot of fake religion, things like televangelists where they're like, send me money and good things will happen to you. Really? Where does it say that in the Bible? Like, you have to think by the time you've reached the point where you're sending money to a televangelist, this is not about Christianity anymore. You've joined a cult. Oh, wait, sorry. A little man on the TV knows things you don't and can affect your life. I I was searching Marco Rubio's Twitter feed for the Bible reference about where you should send money into the televangelist. I think, I thought maybe he would have tweeted about that in his Bible, Bible stuff. Um, no, you're right. And it's, you know, th- these guys are, I'm joking, but these guys are really awful. I mean, the more you read about Scientology and Nexium and just the, the complete oh, those are the ones. Those scuzzy. are the ones that are nasty on the face of it. They're like yeah. branding people and stuff. Joel Osteen Ugh. took hundreds of millions of dollars from his parishioners, so to speak, to build that giant mega church. And then during Hurricane Harvey, wouldn't let anyone in it. Yeah. He locked them out. That was crazy. And then when they got mad and demanded he open it, he said, I can't, it's flooded. And people showed up with their phones and went, no, it's not, liar. And he, he actually issued a statement. I don't remember it verbatim, but it's, it's in the book about how now is not really a good time to be questioning your faith in things. Ugh. Yeah. Such a scumbag, such a fucking scumbag. By the way, all the mosques in Houston were open. I think we need to say that. The, the, the mosques opened the doors without question. It's only these scumbag, quote unquote, Christians that lock the people out. Well, but that's, that's my point about televangelists. Yeah. By the time you're watching a little man on TV and sending him money, it ain't about the Christianity anymore. You've just joined a weird cult that has less to do with Christianity than it does with whoever the guy is, Joel Osteen, Jim Baker, whoever. Prosperity gospel people. And yeah, it, it, it's whoever thought of that. I mean, now I, I was raised Catholic and the Catholic church has thought of a lot of really interesting, fun ideas in that vein. The idea of selling indulgences and pay us and we'll make sure you get to heaven is the best thing. I mean, that's just, that's brilliant right there. I mean, in fairness, at one point, early Christianity merged with the ruins of the Roman Empire's government and formed a Catholic church. So they were always, in part, a governing body. Absolutely. 
more Constant, than religion. Yeah, Constantine did it to unite a, a diverse body in the empire because there was so many different people. He thought if we have a universal religion, that will unite everybody in a way that the, that the ethnicities can't unite. And also part of the reason the Roman Empire fell was climate change. They got snapped with a mini, one of those little tiny mini ice ages, like the one that happened during the French Revolution. And there just was not enough money or enough food for a standing army. So how do you enforce the will of Rome without an army? God's watching. <laughs> going to go to hell. Yeah. It's very convenient. Yeah. yeah. Well, Justinian almost uh, reunited the Eastern and Western empires, except then the plague of Justinian killed off most of his soldiers. Which, I think it's amazing know, people don't realize how huge that was. Plague of Justinian. You should have seen that one coming. That's an old joke. Had his name written all over it. Yeah. No, but everybody in the last year have been like, well, you know, there was the, the Spanish flu and there was the Black Plague. And I'm like, do you know how many plagues there have been? Like huge plagues <laughs> that like knocked out civilizations, like a lot of them. I know it's crazy, and you know, starting with the biggest plague of all, which is when the white men came to the New World, and you know, three quarters of the people died of smallpox. That's pretty bad. That was awful. And and nobody ever didn't just die of smallpox. They yeah. died of everything. Yeah, because as I understand it, in many places, most places did not domesticate animals. Right. Yeah. And our exposure to coronaviruses of all kind comes from domesticated animals. Mm -hmm. So even coronaviruses that white people were very comfortable living with knocked everybody out yeah. when they got here. And when they brought pigs and they brought horses and they brought chickens and did not go well. Plagues are fascinating. They really are. They're, they're fascinating. And they, they do turn things, I mean, alter the course of history in these fascinating ways okay my favorite story i think of the ones in the book is is the guy that did the telegraph machine in alaska the telegraph office that that was really funny i enjoyed that one well that that was uh i think he got his own chapter because he built an entire criminal empire on shell games but i think that story about him he was a very famous con man was in the first chapter in the big lie he set up in Skagway, Alaska, and he was referred to as Soapy Smith because he did a version of the shell game with soap. It doesn't really matter. Um, he set up a telegraph office so that all of these pioneers and gold miners and people who were there could send telegraphs back home at Canada or the U.S., or wherever. And he charged a pretty penny for it. And it was the only telegraph office in Alaska and there were just lines down the street every day for a long time, a couple of years, I think. And the thing is, this was at least two or three years before there were any telegraph wires in Alaska. <laughs> the only telegraph wires in Alaska were in the office he was sitting in. He, they just ran from his desk to the wall and people would come in and go, you know, here's, here's two bucks, here's five bucks, whatever, which was a huge amount of money. I want you to send this telegraph to this person and I want it to say this. And he's got somebody sitting there typing it out and they're like, you got it sent. Now, if you want to reply, that's going to be another $5 and we'll take the reply for you. So the only people who ever got a response to their telegraphs were the people who prepaid for replies. And often the replies said, things are terrible here. Send money. <laughs> oh my God. It's so crazy. I can't, <laughs> I can't believe that nobody, it's like, you know, it's like a toy phone where you're just pretending to, to talk on the phone. I mean, that's all that it was. He might as well have been talking into a banana. I mean, for all the good mm -hmm. that it did. And, and not one person there figured this out and put two and two together. Like, Hey, maybe there aren't lines, you know, outside the building. Like, how does this work? There, there are no telegraph wires in Alaska. It's not a hard fact to, yeah, yeah. to come by. But at the same time, you're in a telegraph office. It's got all the equipment. You see telegraph wires running into the walls. And you probably don't know how telegraphs work or where they go after that. And mostly you see a long line of people with right. cash in hand sending mm -hmm. messages. Yeah. So honesty bias, man. Yeah. That's just, I don't understand how somebody, and I get this way with any of the cons, like how you could possibly 
not even keep a straight face, but just not feel like a complete fucking asshole and have that just destroy you because I'm doing I think, it or falling for it. No, no, doing it, doing it, per- perpetrating this, ho- this, this terrible thing on people is just sort of awful. It just, you know, it takes a real special kind of sociopath to, to, I think, be good at this. I, I don't know. That gets scarier in later chapters when you find out how ubiquitous some of them are. Yeah. Pyramid schemes and snake oil and... Snake oil's good shit. I don't know. Well, it started out as real medicine, mm-hmm. but it was, it was uh, a patent medicine. So the Chinese laborers who came over from China brought snake oil with them, and it was an anti-inflammatory, and it worked really well. It was made out of the rendered fat of black water moccasins. And everywhere they went, they shared it. And people were like, wow, that shit's good. But then they were gone because they were building the railroad. And this was in the era of patent medicines, which were basically any bullshit anyone wanted to make in snazzy packaging. And it was the very beginning of pharmaceutical advertising. Mm. And it led to America's first opioid crisis. It was really pretty fucked up because People sold all kinds of crazy shit. It was also where the FDA came from. The government had to step in at one point and go, you can't drink turpentine. Or actually you can, but you have to say there's turpentine in this. And then fewer people bought it and drank it. Stanley Clark was the original snake oil salesman. He sold something called Stanley's Snake Oil. And he was like a big showman. He went to the Chicago World's Fair and waved around a rattlesnake and talked about how Hopi medicine men taught him this secret. And it turns out in the end, there was nothing in Stanley snake oil except turpentine, paraffin, and I think red dye. So in other words, it's something Trump would have drank to kill the coronavirus in his own body. Yes. Okay. Yes. And it was not the only one. In the heyday of patent medicines, there were drugs for everything. And something like one in eight people were considered pharmaceutical heroin addicts. Oh my God. There were, there were, drops for fussy babies that were opium uh every i bet that worked though that probably did work yeah (laughs) every medication for women what whether it was their own troubles or they were bothering other people there were medicines for both you know like do not feel well or is your wife a dick (laughs) either way give her this and all of it was just heroin and cocaine and sometimes they had much worse things in them um, radiothor was radioactive water that made people's jaws fall off. Oh my god! A health tonic. Yeah, they had to be buried in lead coffins. Ultimately, Doctor Bailey's radiothor, and Doctor Bailey was not a doctor. All of these self-styled experts were fake cowboys like Clark Stanley, or fake doctors like Doctor Bailey. And what they did was they advertised these products everywhere, kind of the way we do with. Um, cosmetics and supplements and actually now just drugs but um you know you see them on tv and there is another strange thing that happens in your brain which is that your brain associates repetition with reliability because of processing speed the more times you hear a fact the faster you process it the next time you hear it so if i said the earth is round you don't even need to think about whether or not it's true right you've heard it so many times Mm mm-hmm The problem is if you hear a lie too many times, it does the same thing and it starts to feel true. Yeah. And then even attempts to debunk it, further entrench the original belief by making it more and more and more familiar. And that's called the illusory truth effect. Things take on the illusion of truth. And so these patent medicines and their fake experts that came with them advertised everywhere just everywhere, on walls, on magazines, on buildings, on boxes. And the more people saw it, the more they believed it, the more they believed it, the more they bought it, and the more they bought it, the more they believed it because they bought it. And people were drinking arsenic and painting lead in their eyeballs and babies were doing way too much blow. And like, (laughs) it's just... John Rockefeller's father, Doc Rockefeller, was one of the guys that sold all this shit. He He was a con, he was one of the original salesy con men a point of embarrassment for him well in the 1880s something like god i want to say one in eight but i don't have it in front of me white women in the u.s were heroin addicts and nobody cared because they were buying it in cute packaging and then taking it home with them 
The problem was that an increasingly popular brain tonic called Coca-Cola, which had a fuck ton of cocaine in it. And by the way, the white people drinking it knew exactly how high they were and they were cool with it. They called it a brain tonic that stimulated your mind and your body, which was, which was sort that's of- actually, That's actually good advertising. That's, that's truth in advertising because it probably did. It did. It, it was code for libido when they said stimulates your body. So it mm. makes you high and makes you want to bang. And um, it was fine. They liked it. They were good with it. And they were giving their babies heroin and cocaine anyway. And the women were all laying around cracked out. So, so what? Well, then bottling happened. Soda bottling happened. And when they started bottling it, anybody could buy it. It wasn't for whites only at soda fountains. Mm. And instantly, there was a mass panic that has been immortalized in newspapers that you can actually go find on microfiche about Negro cocaine fiends. That's a direct quote. Drinking Coca-Cola, becoming crazed, burning down buildings, murdering police, raping white women. Of course, it was all totally made up and hysteria. Yeah. But while cocaine was still completely legal and in things like Cocorettes, which were cocaine cigarettes, basically smoking crack, and cocaine drops and co- cocaine everything. Coca-Cola was pressured to take the cocaine out of their soda almost instantly when Black people could also buy it. So in the midst of this giant opioid epidemic sweeping the United States that nobody cared very much about, soda bottling happened and everybody panicked that Black people might be able to get cocaine. Oh my God. And then it got worse when those rail, railroad workers started staying in towns because they were done working. Mm. These same railroad workers who brought the original snake oil with them, which was really just sort of a transdermal like pain reliever, it was an anti-inflammatory for sunburns or aches and pains. Some you know, small portion of them also liked hard drugs. So in any city, you could find an opium den or you know, the 19th century equivalent of a crack house. And it started to attract a new clientele, unemployed or underemployed white men. Mm. And when that happened, when black people could potentially get the same Coca-Cola white people had been drinking for years. And when they noticed young white men were suddenly hitting the pipe, everyone panicked and went, oh my God, does America have a drug problem? And something called the Harris Narcotics Act was put in place. And it was supposed to make all of this illegal and very difficult to get. And it didn't work. And the only thing that ended the first American opioid epidemic was the Spanish flu and World War I. A lot of people died. <laughs> so I was going to ask, so it was, it, was, it was after or before Prohibition? I guess it was before Prohibition initially when this Way was before. happening. People, because I read that book, it's a great book called, um, I think it's called Last Call, about prohibition and how that was tied into women's suffrage and all this stuff. Totally fascinating book, but my God, people were fucking drunk all the time, like all the time. And prohibition actually really did make Americans drink less because still we drink much, much less than we did at that time. But my God, every, between the, the, the booze and the nicotine and the cocaine and the heroin, the biggest problem was the advertising. It was that they advertised it to everybody and sold it to everybody. And that's very much what's happening right now. Again, I don't spend too much time talking about it because I just wanted you to come to the conclusion on your own, but we're having another opioid epidemic, aren't we? And yeah. there sure are a lot of drug ads, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah. And it's because I- in the 1990s, when many bad decisions were made, like repealing Glass-Steagall. They also rolled back a law that said pharmaceutical companies couldn't advertise directly to consumers. Mm. Do you remember when you were a little kid seeing ads for drugs on TV? I'm trying to remember when that started because remember that Saturday Night Live did that fake ad about Happy Fun Ball and then it rolled all the, the like basic pharmaceutical warnings that they have to have, like do not taunt Happy Fun Ball. Uh, maybe it was around that time and that's what they were poking fun of. So I don't remember. I don't remember any commercials when I was a kid other than the jingles that will be in my head until I die. But I guess the answer is no, I don't remember any drug ads. Certainly no hard liquors. Yeah. You couldn't advertise drugs to people who weren't doctors. Interesting. Not even in Golf Digest? Nope. Wow. 
I feel like Golf Digest as a magazine exists just for the drug ads because they always say see our ad in Golf Digests. Well, I I feel like a lot of things exist just for the ads. I mean, that you could have an entire podcast just on that. It would be fun, you know, certainly. Um, there's a Mark, Dr. Mark Plotkin, who is a, a, a reader and a friend of mine, has a podcast about drug, like organic plants that are drugs. I forget the name of it. It's about plants. And I was listening to the one he did about opium and heroin. And when they invented heroin, they thought that it was not addictive. They really thought that. That's why it's called heroin, because it was heroic. I don't know how they came to that conclusion or the, you know. They were high. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Amen. Now, okay, so we're, we're all. We're almost out of time, and that was a very good joke to to, to end it on. The book is out now, right? It kept, comes out. What 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 is the re- when was the release date? The release date is was um, May eleventh. May eleventh. Okay, so you can you can buy the book on your um, bookstore online of choice, and it will be delivered right to your door. Absolutely. It is called The Truth About Lies. Asia Raiden. Go buy the book, read it. It's great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This was so fun. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signet Della, Stephanie St. John, and Ryan Byrne. History falls apart. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Visit gregoliar.com, G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. And don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. MSW.